I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we're your guide to classical music. In this episode, I'm joined by WETA Classical's resident Shakespeare enthusiast, James Jacobs, and we're talking all about Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet Overture. It has one of the most famous melodies for sure, but there is so much more to discover. We analyze the themes Tchaikovsky chose, James pairs text from the play with musical moments, and we find Shakespearean effects that Tchaikovsky uses in the music. Plus, we learn which famous actor James shared the stage with in a production of Romeo and Juliet, and we read your reviews from Apple Podcasts. Oh, Tchaikovsky, Tchaikovsky, wherefore art thou, Tchaikovsky? You know, James, even though Tchaikovsky and Romeo, they each have three syllables, it's just not quite the same. It doesn't land as well with Tchaikovsky. I feel like someone may say Gesundheit after I say that. <laughs> this is a very popular work. It has one of the most popular or most recognizable melodies. And I think that's for pretty much anyone, whether they like classical music or not, because it's been used so much in commercials and movies and cartoons, whether they're interested in music or not. And there is so much more, as we'll discover, to this piece than just that, well, big theme and Bugs Bunny-type moments. But despite its popularity today, it wasn't a sensation when it first premiered in 1869. Tchaikovsky wrote that the at the dinner after the performance, he was hoping for some kind of kind words or appreciation, but no one said a word about the overture. He went on to make a second revision for the following year, and then he made a third one, then the final one, in 1880, and that's the one we enjoy today. But let's talk Shakespeare for a moment, James, because for the uninitiated, it might seem like, well, Tchaikovsky, this Russian composer, and then these plays by Shakespeare, he loves them. What's what's the connection here, and how much was Tchaikovsky really obsessed? Oh, he loved Shakespeare, and part of that is just him being Russian. In 19th century Russia, Shakespeare was extremely popular. His plays were as produced as much as they were in English-speaking countries. But Tchaikovsky took it to the next level, and frequently, while traveling, the only book he would take would be a volume of Shakespeare's complete plays. But I would also say that he, like many composers, had a special place for this play, Romeo and Juliet. It's interesting because no one would call this Shakespeare's greatest play. Its construction is a big mess. Romeo is an impossible role to act believably. There are these long expository speeches that just stop everything dead in its tracks. And that whole business with the sleeping potion is like bad science fiction. But there's something about the passion of it all that overrides all of that. Its messiness adds to its power because it captures the messiness and the danger of adolescence in a way that no other work of art does as well as this play. Shakespeare managed to convey how it must feel to meet someone and live out your whole life with them in three days, which is a powerful metaphor for that dangerous and exciting time when you're suddenly as tall as your parents and you have just enough life skills to function independently, but without any wisdom or experience and with a lot of hormones and peer pressure. And this is when you're a danger to yourself and others, and every action you take and decision you make has the potential to alter the course of your life. And I think there's an analogous place in the development of an artist. It's not when they're a teenager, but when they've been active for a few years and need to feel that what they do matters and to show that to the world. And it could be any time, usually between late 20s and early 40s, when they need to make that big, messy statement that breaks all the rules. And in fact, Shakespeare 
Shakespeare wrote this play in his early 30s. Tchaikovsky wrote the first version of this piece when he was 29, but then revised it throughout his 30s. And then Berlioz wrote his Romeo and Juliet in his 30s. And Bernstein wrote West Side Story in his 30s, which is his version of this play. And Prokofiev, well, he had some issues that kind of prolonged his musical adolescence, and he wrote his Romeo and Juliet in his early 40s, but it had the same relationship to his uh, body of work. And for that matter, Beethoven was 29 when he wrote his first string quartet, and he said that the slow movement was in inspired by the tomb scene in Romeo and Juliet. It's a rite of passage, and we can hear that in every bar of this piece, that he kept reworking it so that he put everything he had into this piece. Wow. I mean, it sounds like I should, I feel like I should be writing some kind of Shakespeare and Romeo and Juliet while I still have time now in my 30s. Come on, John. And it's so great how Shakespeare takes you on that full ride you just described, and you're not even totally aware of it. And something you said at the very beginning of that, which... I read and found uh, so funny, Tchaikovsky would travel with volumes of Shakespeare, and I even read that like on a long tour, he was missing one or forgot one and was writing his brother desperately, I am missing one, you have to send it or something like that. I mean, pick up a newspaper, Tchaikovsky, this is, <laughs> exactly. you'll survive without... Um, He's probably already read it 10 times anyway, so... That's true. So Tchaikovsky gives us three big themes that align with Shakespeare's play Romeo and Juliet. And the first theme happens right from the beginning in this chorale and the clarinets and bassoons. This is the theme for Friar Lawrence, and we're going to hear it a couple of times in different ways throughout the overture. And this whole opening you hear, it's monorhythmic or homorhythmic. They're all playing the same rhythm, moving to each note together. Much in the same way, James, when I think of like like monks chanting and walking along. Yeah, exactly. It, it really evokes that that sort of cloistered environment that mm-hmm. you that you hear in those Franciscan friars. And then you hear a clear contrast a moment later when the music continues and the strings start to enter one by one. And he really leans in the opposite direction here as now it seems like nobody is moving together or at the same time. So it creates some uncertainty, some tension. And then later I think he adds in the harp to give us some misty dreaminess. I don't know, lawless into the story that we've heard so many times. But James, already in the music, is there anything... Are there any Shakespearean aspects to this already that we may not know? I'm wondering if audiences would have also picked up on this aspect right away, a chorale and then something different. Well, the great thing about an overture is that you don't necessarily have to tell the story in chronological order. In the play, we don't meet Friar Lawrence until Act 2, Scene 3, when so much has already happened, and that's at least 45 minutes into the play. But what he says when he first appears doesn't really fit the music. The gray-eyed morn smiles on the frowning night, checkering the eastern clouds with streaks of light. When I hear those portentous chords in the woodwinds at the beginning, I'm not hearing anything smiling. But it is interesting that the weather comes back at the end of the play, because what this music sounds like is the last speech of the play spoken by the prince in response to Friar Lawrence's long narration of what happened. The sun for sorrow will not show his head. Go hence to have more talk of these sad things. Some shall be pardoned and some punished, for never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. 
that to me sounds like the beginning of this piece. Uh, that Tchaikovsky is not starting at the beginning, but at the ending of the play, and the rest of it is a flashback, like a story Friar Lawrence is narrating. So perhaps the way to think of the beginning is as a prologue, a man about to tell this tragic story of what already happened, in which he played a role that he feels guilty about. And I think you can hear that guilt in the woodwinds, too. Like, he could have done something else. He could have done more that could have saved these poor, crazy kids' lives, and he screwed up. And by the way, it's interesting that he is a friar, because that helps date the story. At one point, he says, Holy St. Francis. The first order of St. Francis was established in the 13th century, but those first friars were instructed to live in poverty and beg for food while they performed their good works, whereas Friar Lawrence is a gardener and an apothecary and a therapist, and he holds office hours, and he knows all the powerful people. He performs weddings. He's probably a notary public. He seems to be living comfortably uh, and have some power in the community. So this presents a kind of contradiction because Shakespeare's source material for this story puts it in the 14th century when it was plausible to have a walled Italian city-state being dominated by two families. That whole scenario would have been to Shakespeare's time what the Wild West is to us. But the kind of friar that Friar Lawrence was could not have existed much before Shakespeare's own time. He's a Renaissance character in a medieval story. Friars aren't monks, they aren't priests, they can perform marriages, but obviously giving Juliet that potion and trying to plan her escape with Romeo was way out of line, and it's possible that we also hear in those opening chords a man realizing that he's about to lose everything. He would have certainly been excommunicated for what he does in the play, and the prince probably would have done to him what he did to Romeo, which is to banish him for crimes that someone else could have executed him for. Wow, that is so interesting, and what a way to hear this. I mean, we've all heard this so many times, this overture, and what you were saying there, it almost makes you think like it's like the friars breaking the fourth wall at the beginning with the chorale. Yeah, here is this terrible tale. I wish I could have done something different. And that's just, uh, that adds so much to it. And Friar Lawrence's chorale, um, it, it comes and goes, it returns, especially here with pizzicato accompaniment in the strings that uh, really build in volume and come down very Tchaikovsky-esque and how he's uh, teasing us musically. And with the pizzicato, it almost sounds a little sneaky to me, James, in a way. Like the friar, he's off, he, you know, he's in society, he's not cloistered away, but he's doing all these things in secret. You know, he's getting the bottle, he's getting the, the herbs or whatever it is for the potion or that thing. And um, I think that's all here in the music. Tchaikovsky is really great with percussion in this, and he's also very efficient with percussion, as we know. One aspect here I love that makes it very theatrical is his use of timpani, sneaking it in with this kind of long roll that slowly gets louder and it adds like a kind of chaos to the sound, then a huge big solo moment. It's like really thunderous and it feels Shakespearean to me because it's so dramatic. And I read that while Shakespeare was really into special effects and to do things like lightning, there might be beating of drums or rolling a cannonball around on the wood floor to, um, yeah, to, to make something happen. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we're celebrating the 400th anniversary of the first folio this year. And the very first line in the very first play in the first folio, which is the Tempest, is that a tempestuous noise is heard. Mm. And like that's the first thing out of the gate. It's not dialogue. It's not, you know, he's on a ship or, you know, and no, there's no visual cues. It's just what we hear. And what we hear is the sound of thunder. 
And uh, but it, it is true that sometimes they got out of hand. And um, uh, during I mean, Shakespeare's very last play, which was a collaboration with John Fletcher, was Henry VIII. And uh, at one point, uh, a cannon went off as they would do during those English history plays. And it misfired and it burned the Globe Theater to the ground. So, um, which is sad on so many levels. But that's the danger of theater. Yeah, great to have that thrill. So this sets up the confrontation between Montagues and Capulets. And I think Tchaikovsky sets the scene here even before we fully realize it because he gives us these this image of opposing forces, he makes them pretty clear right away with winds and strings, alternating chords, getting into the big section here, which is our second theme, which I just kind of call uh, the fight theme or our fight scene, if you will. Lots of whirling and twisting lines, violins racing. I mean, it sounds like an absolute uh, brawl. There's a bunch of little motifs you can listen to and hear how they change a little bit. One I would say to really listen for in particular is this string of two sixteenth notes uh, with an eighth note. So dig-a-dum, 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 because one section will do it, and then another will do it in a different register, like very high, and it's like two sides arguing and um, shouting at each other. When I hear that passion Tchaikovsky, I'm thinking about my own experience. I was in a production of Romeo and Juliet uh, when I was 20 years old at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland, um, in which actually dropping a little bit of name, uh, Kyle McLaughlin played uh, Romeo. That was okay. his first big role. but And I was one of the musicians in the play, but I, it, during the opening scene, I I was I had this big stick where it, that I was supposed to use to break down people's sword fights and that sort of thing, because I, I was an officer of the law. And I had my one line, which was clubs, bills, partisans, strike, beat them down. And beautiful. And I couldn't wear my glasses during that scene because that would have been too big. So I was practically blind, wandering, and all these swords were going, and plastic fruits and vegetables were being thrown. And you know, it was really, it was just, it was so I, I you know, I, the terror of that moment that I lived for 32 times on stage uh, comes back to me whenever I hear bum, 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 bum. So the Montagues, the Capulets, they're fighting, but they, they they tire themselves out. The fighting slowly winds down. And that's why I mentioned that little bit before the digadum 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 motif, because you hear it here, but it's slowing down. It's getting uh, softer in volume and also intensity. But is there anything here, James? Because when I hear it, yeah, it sounds obvious. Two sides fighting. Yeah, we get that. But is there anything extra Shakespearean and how they're doing it. I'm thinking like that, that timpani moment from earlier. Well, yeah. Well, I think that, you know, whenever you, as you said, like whenever you hear those drums, it is evocative of the way that, that Shakespeare used drums and Shakespeare used timpani. And it had a sort of dual meaning because it was to, you know, it was ceremonial, right? To get the, the troops in line and to, you know, and as the, as the parades would go by, but it was also a call to arms. Mm-hmm. And it also represented arms in in the in the play. And and I think, you know, one of the things that's so radical to me about uh this fight scene is that part where the orchestra goes bum, 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 and it seems yeah. completely random. And 
and it really represents the chaos of of that moment and and it's something that Shakespeare uh, depicts really well right right from the beginning of the is that you know no one planned this fight and there were a lot of Montagues and Capulets just sort of everyday citizens that thought that the feud was ancient history and yet it was still being perpetrated by many people within those and all it took was someone biting their thumb at someone you know. <laughs> And then we get this moment where Tchaikovsky just lets us bathe in the tonality for a minute. This feels like a real palate cleanser. And it goes along with how I, I often say Tchaikovsky is fantastic with, with pacing. He knows how to give you huge moments, the right amount of time for recovery, and how to prepare you for the next section. And I think that's what he does here. And it prepares us beautifully for the first playing of our unforgettable love theme, which is our third theme. And it's played first by... English horn and also violas, but it's very subdued here. This isn't very outward reaching, you know, James are running to each other in a field of flowers. This feels more inward. You're admiring your beloved from afar and the strings are muted in this section too, right? Oh yeah, it's it's a completely different tonality and also tone color really from anything explored mm-hmm. in the beginning and and even through the fight scene we still get the sense it'll it's still tied back to the beginning we still get the sense that Friar Lawrence was narrating the story there is still subtle uh callbacks to those chords and and that structure but here it's just the world of two Romeo and Juliet in their own impossible idyllic you know this is well uh there's a place for us, you know, that, that's, that's, that's where it comes from. And um, Tchaikovsky depicts that so well in that change of pretty much everything. It sounds like a different orchestra always came in all of a sudden. It really does feel like a different orchestra. And part of how he's smart, I think, and how he's also pacing this is, think of the instruments here, English horn, which is um, similar, you know, it's lower than the oboe, and then the viola, another lower on the spectrum string instrument. These are lower instruments, and we get a bit higher um, in terms of this timbre as we go along. I think if it's already coming out of the gates with um, you know flutes and high violins, it might be a little too sweet with um, these repetitions. And so Tchaikovsky brings us back down a bit before building into the second round, uh, the second playing of the love theme, getting bigger with flutes and oboes taking the theme. And here, this is a moment, I mean, I'm a brass player, I guess, James, but the horn line, it ties everything together. The way the horn is just moving, it sounds like it's just slowly cascading down. And I I feel like it ties the whole thing together. Absolutely. And I think one of the reasons how this works so well is how direct Tchaikovsky is. It's straight to the heart. We don't have a lot of things happening all at once. If I think of, you know, something by Wagner, there may be several minutes of, I don't know what's happening. And and Mahler sometimes, too. We don't get that here with Tchaikovsky. Well, in a way, this is kind of doing the exact opposite of what Wagner is doing. Wagner was really trying to make you feel the passage of time and make you feel that it was, that you are there. That, you know, the twilight scene from uh, Tannhäuser really feels like it's, the, as long as a real sunset. And there's that power to that. And and that's great for that place. But here, you know, we've only got 20 minutes in this piece. And, and, and Tchaikovsky 
crams so much into it, but he still sort of conveys that epicness. It still feels like it's taking up as much time as the play does, you know, you know, two and a half hours. It still feels like you get all that. And he does that with that uh, sort of change of you know, well, literally change of pace where it's sort of like all of a sudden there's, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff happens for a few minutes and then, you know, and then nothing happens. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, with that sort of change in dramatic rhythm. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of composers influenced by Shakespeare learned from Shakespeare was uh, that, that dramatic rhythm, that sort of tension and release. And, uh, and, and it's, and it's something that Shakespeare did so well and, and, you know, it's almost like Shakespeare taught a generation of composers how to write symphonies, you know. Um, <laughs> I was about to say, and it sounds like you're saying Shakespeare taught them. Yeah. And we'll get into maybe why Tchaikovsky chose these themes specifically right after this. Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music, is made possible by WETA Classical. Join us for the music and insightful commentary anytime, day or night. You can stream the music online at wetaclassical.org or through the WETA Classical app. It's free in the App Store. Okay, James, why did Tchaikovsky choose these three aspects from Shakespeare's play, the Friar Lawrence, the fighting between Montagues and Capulets, and then the love theme? The lovers have this conflict in this universe of three worlds, their families, their religious and cultural traditions represented by Friar Lawrence, and one another, the, you know, the sort of impossible world that they they glimpse ever so briefly, but that they know is its own thing and it's very real and it's so different from anything else in their lives. And, you know, the tragedy of the story is the impossibility of ever really reconciling these conflicting interests. And they're all primal bonds. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the reasons why this play is so universally beloved because that's a conflict that we all have and that we're all in a way forced to have is sort of like we feel this connection to our families and a loyalty to them. But then growing up means letting go of that, at, you know, to a certain extent and creating our own way. And then there's also, you know, the religious and cultural traditions and and those bonds, but that might be in conflict with the other two. And then what do you want? What do, what do I want? You know, when, and also what do I want not only as an individual but, as, but in a unit with the person I love and want to share my life with? And there is no answer to that. People just muddle along and they come up with their own and sometimes it ends badly. And that's what happens here especially. And, of course, you know, the message of the play is that that's even more likely to happen when you have a society that's so stratified. Uh, and that's, you know, what it wants to break out of. I mean, I think that's also part of the reason why Friar Lawrence is kind of an anachronism in this play, because it's also in this play kind of the Middle Ages turning into the Renaissance, right? It's the, you know, sort of like the culture saying, well, actually, that doesn't work. And maybe if they lived in a freer society, this wouldn't have happened, you know? So it's, you know, it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a, of a message there. Well, we were not kidding when we said that there's a lot more to this overture than just a Bugs Bunny moment. Um, as you just described there, there's a lot more that you can um, see into this and how Tchaikovsky and uh, Shakespeare were as well. The love theme can go on forever. We go back to some fighting. The low brass have some huge, powerful moments punching out, uh, lots of syncopation. 
all of this comes back here with uh, fragments of different themes, and it brings us to this huge moment, which sounds like a huge plea or something from Friar Lawrence, and this is what I was also meaning about Tchaikovsky being direct, because it's the trumpet playing Friar Lawrence, and then the entire orchestra in unison with uh, the rhythm, and also very loudly, they're all playing the same thing. It's the whole orchestra against trumpet. It's, it's amazing how the trumpet has to soar over this. It's a huge moment. It's, uh, yeah, this must be a brass player's either, you know, worst nightmare or greatest dream, you know, something like that. Tchaikovsky is absolutely one of my favorite composers to play and um, probably will be for a very long time. This is such a powerful moment, and it leads us back into the fight theme again, and the strings kind of rocket us into it. And I think that's also a reason why the love theme works so well is because of that, how the strings, they kind of, they rise so quickly into it. I mean, it's huge. It is that movie, movie moment. The horn line is transformed. It's still there. And underneath, we have the triplets and the winds propelling us, uh, pushing us forward. But we have a lot happening here with um, interplay between a lot of these themes coming in and out. Yes, yes. And I imagine that that climactic moment is that, you know, that night that they finally got to spend together, that one night, Mm -hmm. you know, before Romeo has to uh, escape through the window in the morning. And we hear in the final repeat of the love theme, it gets interrupted by the fight theme, and it's reminding us of, I guess, this tragedy that is to come because Tchaikovsky, in total Tchaikovsky fashion, just devastates us. Just existential despair and another thunderous timpani solo. Followed by this funereal march rhythm. And things really change here because we get a new atmosphere, it's uncomfortable, and the themes seem totally transformed, like permanently. We can't go back to what we heard before. Right. And we have this corral in the winds, and it feels so solemn and like nothing else we've heard. Right. And I think that corral represents a very specific moment in the final scene. And by this time, the lovers have killed themselves due to misunderstandings, and Friar Lawrence has narrated everything that has gone on, you know, in front of the parents and the, the, the law authorities, the prince. And in fact, Romeo's mother has already died of sorrow uh, from, from the news, so she doesn't show up. And so it's, they're all together on this, on this cloudy morning, you know, having realized the, the folly of their ways. And that, in a way, Friar Lawrence accomplished what he wanted to accomplish, but in the most tragic way possible. You know, he decided to cooperate with the crazy scheme of of having of the secret marriage between Romeo and Juliet because he wanted this feud to come to an end. And unfortunately, it could only come to the end with this sacrifice. And then the patriarchs, Capulet and Montague, realized this. And of course, they've kind of realized it all along. I mean, they haven't, they've already made it clear that they don't like the fact that everybody under them has been per, has been perpetuating this feud. But now it's like they're going to really put their foot down and and transform the culture. And so when you hear this, this corral, which, as you say, is not like anything we've heard so far, it represents the moment when Capulet says, Oh, brother Montague, give me thy hand. This is my daughter's jointure, for no more can I demand. And then Romeo's father replies, 
but I can give thee more, for I will raise her statue in pure gold, that while Verona by that name is known, there shall no figure at such rate be set as that of true and faithful Juliet. Wow. Remember, this is Romeo's father mm-hmm. saying true and faithful Juliet. Yeah. It's a real moment of of finally some bonding, finally some, you know, some hands across the, the ocean and, mm-hmm. and, and coming together. And you can actually hear that color gold in the orchestration somehow, just the way that he orchestrates those winds and brass in exactly the right way, that you can hear that change in texture and color and of the scene and uh, the way Tchaikovsky does that is pure genius. Well, that's beautiful. I love that. And it puts the music and everything here in, in a whole new light uh, for myself. And I love how Tchaikovsky, after this chorale, sweeps us away a bit with the harps and the strings. And in my own imagination, Tchaikovsky does this a bit and also his ballets. It's kind of a, hey, it was just a story. Nobody was harmed in the making of this overture. It's all okay, that kind of thing. And actually, that's sort of a Shakespearean gesture that he spells out in A Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, which is the companion piece to Romeo and Juliet because it contains a parody of Romeo and Juliet. And, and there, it's sort of flip sides of the same, the sort of the same themes mm-hmm. in a way. But, uh, you know, sort of like, no, I'm just, I'm just a guy with a lion costume. I'm not really a lion. Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> This is just an extraordinary work. As we said, there's so much more happening here um, below the surface of the music. Now, James, if, and I'm including myself here too, I'm inspired by this and I want to hear more of this dramatic music or whatever it is that Tchaikovsky has with Shakespeare, where would I go next after hearing this? Well, he wrote two other similarly structured pieces based on The Tempest and Hamlet. And when you listen to those pieces with the same ear that you listen to Romeo and Juliet, you see uh, a similar approach, uh, especially in The Tempest. The Hamlet is more, it's more along sort of the Berlioz line of just kind of a sort of, or list, like uh, just kind of a character portrait in music. But Tempest is, is like Romeo and Juliet, you know, he really wants to sort of hit all the plot points and um, and create these different uh, orchestral textures for different parts of the play. But I think even more than those two pieces, you can hear Shakespeare's influence on Tchaikovsky even in his non-Shakespearean pieces mm-hmm. in terms of that dramatic rhythm that we were talking about, that calibration of emotion. Uh, there's something very Shakespearean about Eugene Onegin, for example. And of course, Pushkin, who wrote that story that opera is based on, is also heavily influenced by Shakespeare. And the piano trio, I mean, it's just a purely instrumental work, but it's written as a memorial to a great friend of his, and it unfolds like a Shakespearean tragedy, and even as a funeral march at the end, like Hamlet. And the way the first act of The Nutcracker seamlessly carries us from the real world to one of the imagination reminds me of Shakespeare's late romances like The Winter's Tale and The Tempest. So in December coming up, I know everybody listens to the second act for all the great tunes, but really listen to the first act, and I think that's where you can hear this sort of Shakespearean influence. You can definitely count Tchaikovsky among those composers like Mendelssohn, Berlioz, Verdi, Britton, and many others who considered Shakespeare an artistic soulmate, you know, just like Romeo and Juliet. 
perfect. I mean, you're you're talking about the piano trio, which is also one of my favorite works from Tchaikovsky, and I've not really thought about it in that light, so I'm going to have to listen to that again. And I'll put some performances of those uh, pieces you just mentioned on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. Well, now it's time to read your reviews from Apple Podcasts. Joey Stan gave us five stars and said, Love the show. As someone who played bass trombone in high school, I appreciate John's insights from being a tuba player. I especially like the Pini di Roma episode. It's been one of my favorite pieces since seeing it in Fantasia 2000 as a kid, and later in high school when I saw the Fountain City Brass Band play The Last Movement. But I had no idea what connection it had to actual pine trees of Rome, so it was great to learn about the backstory and hear the kids' song. Well, thank you so much, Joey Stan, for the glowing review. And we love to give those different perspectives. Yes, I play tuba and James with the cello, and then as we know, uh, Shakespearean actor extraordinaire. Shakespearean extra extraordinaire. Oh, there you go. <laughs> that, yeah, that here is me. But we have so many perspectives here, and it's so great to we'll bring them all together here for you. And thank you, James, for all your perspectives here in Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet. Absolutely. This is a lot of fun, John. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. You can send me comments and episode ideas to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review in your podcast app. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from WETA Classical. 